the sovereignty plan is just about understanding your own environment, understanding where your data goes and about going and doing a cost benefit analysis of sourcing sovereign capability to be able to underpin whatever products you have that are you're selling. You're listening to KBcast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Joining me today is Remy Cole and Simon Smalley, co-founders from Redacted Information Security. And today we're discussing Australian sovereignty, but also IRAP as well. So thank you, Simon, and thank you, Remy, for joining. I've had wonderful things about you in the market. So I'm excited to have you both here. You've got great backgrounds, super well-versed in the space. So I'm going to go to you first, Remy. Why do you believe Australian sovereignty is important at the moment? It's a hot topic. I've spoken about it at length in the space, and obviously the government's pushing for it as well. Thanks for having us, Chris. Yeah, look, we we believe that uh, sovereignty is important, particularly from a cybersecurity perspective, because of what we see around the, the supply chain, not just the physical supply chain of parts or components or computers coming from overseas or with parts from overseas, but also from a data point of view particularly with the acceleration of the cloud. We see that where your data actually resides is becoming more and more important and where it's, where it's sent and where it can be intercepted is also equally important. We've done work in the past with supply chain assessments where we've seen companies which they, they sell products which seem sovereign or particularly benign. And then we find out that a small component made by a third or fourth line supplier is in fact from company which is known for not necessarily supply chain attacks, but has a particularly opaque or sorted history with chip insertions or that kind of thing. It's it's definitely something that needs to be looked at better and more in the Australian market because uh, we consume a lot of goods from overseas, particularly a lot of technology. And where those are put into sensitive applications, there is a cybersecurity risk and identifying that risk is very important from what a perspective of what we do in IREP assessments and uh, particularly around the information security of government data, it becomes more important as we go up security classifications because uh, we, we need to identify that risk and understand it before we put sensitive data on those systems. Excellent point. So I'm, I'm going to go to you and I'm going to jump back to you, Remy, because you said something that I really want to get into. Yeah, I think there has been a real push, uh, particularly in Australia, towards uh, building sovereign capability and utilizing sovereign capability. A trend that we've noticed, and this is not us as redacted, but a trend that we've noticed in Australia is that some of our supplying organizations for a lot of our technology and a lot of our security and, and government, government and industry is that they're coming from they're coming from countries where perhaps even though they are private corporations they're still getting quite heavily influenced by foreign governments and that is a risk for particularly sensitive information that the Australian government really wants to try and move away from so there's been a big push towards uh, building and developing sovereign capability in Australia and I I'm obviously quite supportive of that okay so this is really interesting so Remy I'm going to go to you first you made a comment that companies seem sovereign but aren't. What do you mean by that? Is this more that you've sort of dug a little bit deeper and figured out that, oh, actually your, your data is being stored and not in Australia, for example? Like, what, is that, what does that look like from your perspective? So from our perspective, you've got, you've got the two spaces. You've got physical space, or as some people in cybersecurity call it, meat space. And then you've got virtual space or cyberspace. In the, in the physical space, we've kind of 
hit that nail very much about global supply chain and manufacturing and who, who manufactures things. But from the virtual space, as you're asking about who, who actually controls the data, we find that people, people that use very cloud-heavy networks or cloud-heavy technologies or, or even on-premises that leverage perhaps cloud security products, there's a kind of opaque layer that has to do with software-defined networking where you might have, you might have a virtual, virtual networking layer that actually doesn't necessarily relied in, reside in the same data center that your, uh, that your virtual machines or that a lot of your basic infrastructure resides in and that information may flow outwards into other areas or into other data centers and then back again, or it may flow from country to country. And you'll say, companies will say, we, we have data sovereignty, we know where all our data resides. And their repositories may reside in those places, but the data may transit other areas, which not as much of an issue because data at rest is, is I think, at the forefront of the virtual sovereignty issue. But data in transit certainly needs to be thought about. And particularly the conversation we're seeing at the moment around how TikTok works and the uh, ByteDance trying to assure the US government that all of the information of US citizens is residing in, in the US. Uh, they've been able to prove that that's certainly true for a lot of the data at rest, but data is still transiting through data centers in, in China and then back again. Um, so there's been a lot of questions about that in the media. So that's the fully understanding exactly where the data is residing and where it's, where it's transiting is, is what's important there. So Remy, I just want to push on that point a little bit more before I go back to Simon on something else. Is You spoke before about companies saying, oh, we've got data sovereignty. And then you're sort of saying, well, actually, might not have that. Does that come from they're trying to hide something, a naivety, maybe they don't know? Or do you think for sure that they know and they're just trying to sort of say this outwardly that, of course, uh, we've got data sovereignty here in Australia? What does that, what does that sort of look like from your, from your point of view? I want to be a, a very helpful cybersecurity expert rather than a, a finger-pointy cybersecurity expert. And I'm not suggesting that you're, you're a finger-pointy cyber security expert, but I find that going to companies and saying, hitting them with a big stick and saying, you said that you had data sovereignty, but then there's this small part that your data went here and then came back again. So I think you should be slapped with a fine or I think you should be X, Y, Z. And then the media gets a hold of that. And I'm not necessarily defending Optus or anything very, very topical at the moment, but we see a lot of company X got hacked and then suddenly everybody goes in the pile on and whether or not we know the full details about it, everybody immediately jumps to, boo, you were negligent. You should have, you should have known X, Y, Z. This is your fault. You, 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 made our, you made our data go to the bad places. But really, there has, there has been a crime committed in those instances. In terms of sovereignty, I think a lot of the cases that you may have, you may have some technology-based people in those companies who, who would know specifically, but a lot of the time, Companies will say that they have, have sovereignty because it is the hot topic right now. We're, we're a sovereign capability, whereas all our data reside, resides in Australian data centers or all our data resides in US data centers. But they won't have a strategy to back that up. They haven't made uh, a sovereignty plan. They haven't made a policy that they've pushed down to their technology departments to say, hey, when you do create things, when you, when you do make products for us to sell, make sure that the, the data is in a sovereign location. So you might often find a mismatch between what the company's marketing says and what their technology people know to do. So a lot of it is about careful, careful planning. Like I said, 
you need you need to fully identify your physical and your virtual supply chains and where where your data goes. And a lot of the time, people just don't they just don't write the strategy and they don't write the policy and they don't uh, have any procedures in place to ensure that that happens. They just kind of say we're doing that, and then inevitably the creep happens and uh, somebody tries to save money by buying by buying compute time over in a over in another data center, which which might be cheaper than than US or Australian based data center. Yeah, that is really interesting. Okay, so. Simon, you mentioned something before about foreign governments heavily influencing Australian government. Talk to me a little bit more about that. So I wouldn't go so far as to say foreign foreign governments heavily influencing Australian governments. But the reason I, I feel the reason that the big push behind developing sovereign capability is because we want to move away from you know utilizing uh, foreign commercial suppliers. From those countries where those commercial supplies can be influenced by foreign governments. So I think the, the sort of prime example of that was Huawei getting uh, banned from you know, contributing to Australia's 5G infrastructure. Uh, and Mike Burgess, who was the um, Director General of the Australian Signals Directorate at the time, gave that in, in no uncertain terms as his rationalisation behind that decision saying that Huawei may may well be a private organization based out of China the Chinese political system has all the has laws whereby um, Chinese intelligence services can actually make directions upon Chinese companies and that in itself is a risk that the Australian government is not willing to accept in that circumstance and so as a result of that kind of attitude that's where the big push for sovereignty has come from yeah, that, that is really interesting. And that's a fair enough risk that, the, of course, Australian government doesn't want to accept. You mentioned before, uh, Remy, getting a sovereignty plan. Now, so many people, whether it's an IRP or whatever it is, playbook, we talk about getting these plans. But what does that look like from your point of view? How, how do people start getting a sovereignty plan? Like making any plan, it's about understanding the environment that you're operating in first. Generally, it's not something, if, if you're starting a new company, a new technology company, or if you're starting a company that uses some sort of technology architecture, maybe it's a SaaS company or a managed service or something like that. The first thing you're not going to think about, uh, you're not going to think about a sovereignty plan as the first thing that you do. You're probably more concerned with your business development and like you said, your incident response plan, backup and recovery, that sort of stuff. But as you get further down the track, You've got to look at what you've already done and look at the environment that you have and go, all right, do we have sovereignty? You can't start saying it until you actually have it to begin with. Start looking at that. And then once you've understood what your systems are and what the necessary components of them are, you've got to make a plan to either migrate to to sovereign versions of those or, or you've got to recognize that, hey, maybe you have requirements which cannot be met by sovereign capabilities at the moment. And so you'd identify those components and then you can go down to the product level and go, this product can be sovereign because it doesn't have dependencies which rely on things which can only be sourced from overseas. But this, this one can't because it does. Having a plan is, is about understanding. There's no framework for a sovereignty plan per se. It's not like they're going to fold it into ISO 27001 or, or the ISM or, or SOC 2 or anything like that. Um, uh, GDPR does does touch on sovereignty a bit, but that's very European focus. The sovereignty plan is just about understanding your own environment, understanding where you, where your data goes, and about going and doing a cost benefit analysis of sourcing 
sovereign capability to be able to underpin whatever whatever products you have that are you're selling. Yeah, that's excellent. And yes, I think it's just a, a great sort of talking point because I think people are wanting to know answers about the sovereignty piece in in the market. Okay, so Remy, I want to sort of jump into switch gears for a second and and talk about InfoSec Registered Assessors Program, also known as IRAT. So for those who are unfamiliar, can you please explain what this is? Yeah, sure thing. This is our this is the core of our business. The InfoSec Registered Assessors Program is administered by the Australian Cybersecurity Center, which is part of ASD. And a lot of people talk about it like it's a like it's a framework similar to ISO 27001 or SOC 2, or we hear phrases sometimes, oh, you've got to get IRAP certified or that kind of thing. And that's that's actually a, a, a misnomer that's uh, incorrect on what the program actually is. The IRAP program is simply a list of endorsed uh, security professionals who the ACSC has checked their qualifications. They've put them through course, they've put them through an exam, and they maintain they maintain their qualifications through time. And then they put them on the list and they say, we endorse these people as being independent and having the requisite qualifications to do an assessment against the ISM for your system. So the, in, the Australian Government Information Security Manual, also created by uh, ACSC, is the, the framework in, in which, or the blueprints, if you want, in which companies or government organizations should make their systems so that they are secure enough to lower the risk for having classified information on those systems. The IRAP assessors, they simply do the assessment, produce a report, and then that report gets delivered to whoever the information security risk owner is so that they can understand it. So the, the, whole, the whole program is about Australian government departments and information security owners understanding the risk of systems rather than necessarily meeting a, a checklist or a framework or being compliant in any way. I give a very long ditty, which I will not bore you with, about the different ways in which you can have good and bad IRAP assessments, with, which still result in the system being used, but it's just about understanding risk. Yeah, thanks Thanks for providing that clarity. And you are right. I've definitely heard a lot of things being thrown around the industry, which is why I wanted to get you to explain it because it's obviously the core of what you do. So Simon, do you have any sort of idea on some of the assumptions that people have about like IRAP? Because I think, again, there is sort of, and, and that's why I wanted Remy to explain it, that I think people are confused perhaps by the term, what it does, what it means. Do you get a bit of that from your experience? Absolutely. So IRAP actually does come with a couple of interesting assumptions that some of them are based in in truth, but old truths that are no longer relevant. And some of them are just are just you know, completely out there. What we found is that aside, so, so as Remy mentioned, IRAP is a, a list of endorsed security professionals by ASD or ACSC. And what we find, first of all, the the one that's out there is that people look at the IRAP list and all they see is CSC or ASD endorsed security professionals, which then leads to uh, IRAP becoming like a desired qualification for all kinds of security related roles. And we see a lot of a lot of work that comes through that people are like, oh, we want an IRAP assessor. Uh, we're like, okay, so what? Tell me about your system. What is it that needs to be assessed? And they're like, oh no, we're just we're doing some some other project. We just we wanted an IRAP assessor because we heard that they're the best. So it's great from our business perspective, but it's it's somewhat like a misunderstanding what the IRAP list is. 
The second thing that we find, the one that's based in old truths, is that people are still very heavily focused on compliance for IRAP or compliance with the ISM. And they feel that in order to say, uh, you know, build a system that then gets, uh, you know, can hold secret information or protected information, that they'll say, okay, how do, how do we comply with the ISM? Like, how do we get an IRAP assessor in here to tick all the requisite boxes and then our system will be certified to that level, which is just, uh, that's just not the, just not the way it works. As Remy uh, sort of mentioned, it's not, it's not compliance focused anymore. It is risk focused. So what, so what the IRAP process does is we, we basically give a security audit, which I can give details on how that process runs, but we then eventually, the sort of output of that process is that you get a risk assessment saying we, as ASD endorsed you know, IRAP professionals, have assessed this system and uh, to a level of your know, official or official sensitive or protected or secret. And we say for uh, information of that classification, we consider this to be low risk, your medium risk, high risk, uh, whatever. And then that report goes back to whoever the risk owner is. And then they have said, well, and they say, well, I'm willing to accept that risk or I'm not willing to accept that risk. We need to go back and rework our security plan. Yeah, you absolutely are right. I think people are coupling up IRAP assessments or IRAP assessors with compliance. So I think it's great that you've demystified a lot of these assumptions that people do have in the space. So how do you get to the point in your organization or company or whatever it is and say, okay, I need to go, for example, and talk to, to Remy and Simon because I need to do an IRAP assessment? Like, is there a specific reason? Is there a point in time? Can Maybe, Simon, can you share a little bit more about what does that look like? Does everyone need to do this process? So maybe, again, I think it's going to come back to linking it back to some of the assumptions that people have around IRAP assessments. Yeah, absolutely. So what we're finding at the moment within the market is that most organizations that come to us looking for IRAP assessments have been directed that they need to have an IRAP assessment done. And that's normally because you know, they're building a system that either for directly for government or is intends to hold government classified information. And so where we still have a little bit little bit of a lack of understanding in Australia, a little bit of lack of maturity in within the industry of people you know, suddenly getting this, oh, you need to have an IRAP assessment done, like, oh my God, okay, we didn't really consider that in our initial planning. Does everyone need to have it done? Fundamentally, I think the answer is no, not, not really. So the ISM provides some excellent guidance on how to build secure systems and, and recommendations on how to uplift your system security level. But of course, the, the industry is full of very talented and intelligent security professionals who are just as capable as we are of reading and interpreting the ISM and building security plans that meet the intent and of, of that document. So if you want to if you want to uplift your security plan by all means a, a cybersecurity professional whether inside your organization or outside can can look at the ISM interpret it and build your plan within those guidelines but in order for a a government risk owner be satisfied that 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 process has been done to a very high standard that is where they lean on the IRAP program and they say okay this this kind of assessment within the guidelines of the ISM you must have that done by these ASD endorsed professionals. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that where I think the confusion's getting, I mean, just purely from my experience, is if you're not working like with directly like with government or you're not holding classified information, if you're just some independent person, like you don't need 
an IRAP assessment. And I just think people just think it's some extra strong foothold compliance based on what both of you have touched on. So I think that's where some of the assumption comes from. Okay, I want to get into what's involved with an IRAP assessment. I mean, you just mentioned before there, Simon, around doing the audit. Can you sort of walk our listeners through, okay, you've been directed by the government, we've redacted, for example, what's the next step? What can people expect? Actually, just before I get into that, I do have a quick point on the last topic, is that sort of hand in hand with the, this idea that IRAP assessors are the best people in the industry and that IRAP certification being like a high selling point for recruiting professionals, having an IRAP assessment done actually for a lot of organizations becomes a matter of you know, advertising or a way they can pitch their product to the public even if it's not designed to hold government information. A lot of organizations are like, we'll get an IRAP assessment done because it actually makes us look really good. And uh, the, the IRAP logo and the IRAP documentation, that's quite well controlled and you're not allowed to use that logo unless you are an IRAP assessor or you've had an IRAP assessment done. So that is, that's, become, that's quite an interesting thing that's coming out of the market. But on to that next point, like what's involved in an IRAP assessment? It's probably quite similar to other security assessments or security audits that people have seen in the past. Uh, so we try and move away from the, the terminology of audit because, as, as we've previously spoke about, it's not a pass-fail thing anymore. It is entirely risk-based. So we, we try to call them assessments rather than audits. But uh, it is, generally speaking, broken down into two phases. It used to be dictated as two phases. Now it's not not necessarily required, but we do it in, in two phases anyway. And here at Redacted, we call those two phases the tell me phase and then the show me phase. Now the, the first phase, the tell me phase, is an audit of your security documentation and your security plan as a whole. So there's a there's a whole heap of documents that you can prepare, policies, procedures, guidelines as part of your overall security plan. And what we do in phase one is we review all of that documentation and we review it against the controls and the guidelines within the ISM. But we also review it, uh, at least from our, our perspective at Redacted, we also review it to ensure that the plan is actually feasible and the plan is workable. So Remy and I, Remy and I actually met in the army. We both have, we both have ops planning backgrounds. And what we find quite often is that organizations have put together a security plan and they've basically written it to be a, a box ticking exercise, right? So, okay, we need to comply with this, we need to comply with that. And, it's, and, and they go on and they produce a plan that is just uh, overly complicated and difficult to understand. And the policy is quite difficult to read and jumps all over the place. We come with recommendations saying, your plan, your plan should be reasonably simple. There, there are complexities, of course. So security is hard and, and cybersecurity is a, is a complicated industry. But your security plan needs to be acceptable, feasible, and workable. And we will go through that phase and have a look through your documentation and say like, yeah, you know what, you've done well here. You could probably do better here within certain limitations. You have to remember that the IRAP assessment is not, is not us designing your security policy for you. you. You can't just say like, okay, we've got like a threadbare plan. Please tell us what we need to do to pass IRAP. We can't do that. The IRAP, the IRAP process actually forbids us from doing that. We need to maintain a, a high level of independence. We sort of finished the tell me phase, make sure your plan is good to go. You get an interim report from that, say, like, uh, you know, you guys have done well here and you could probably uplift there and, and whatnot. We give you a sort of a short break to ingest that information. 
And then we go on to phase two, which is our like show me phase, where we have a look at all of the security that you've implemented in your plan. And then we have a look at your system and we make sure that you've actually done it. Where like very, very simple example, your security plan has a password policy that dictates password complexity saying, okay, we, we say that passwords must be more than 10 characters and, and have this level of complexity. And then we go into the, the system and we grab a system administrator or something like that. We say, okay, show me, show me where that password policy has been implemented at a technical level. That show me phase can be everything from dragging that system administrator in saying, show me, show me, show me, show me where you've done all this. It can take the place of interviews with people. We might want to interview like their security analysts or, um, or security personnel or their system administrators or the CISO. It could take place in the form of blue team exercises where we get the, all the responsible stakeholders into a room and we say, okay, this situation has just happened. Do you guys know your, your policy and procedures well enough that you can tell me right now what the process is from here? And uh, yeah, and we go through that process. And at the end of it, you get, you get your report saying, yeah, you know what? You guys have got a good security policy and the responsible, you've implemented it well and the responsible people know what they're doing. And here's your overall risk. Thank, thanks for coming and see you later. Wow, that was excellent. I really appreciate you making that super easy, the tell me and then show me. So just a really quick question on that one, Simon. Do you think when people get to the show me phase, you start to see discrepancies of, oh, well, you said that, but actually that's not a thing where you can show me. Do you see people perhaps not failing there, but perhaps falling down at that, at that sort of um, at junction? Sometimes, um, especially when the security policy is new and they've just, they've just developed a new plan and they're like, okay, yeah, here's how we're going to do things. Can we get some IRF assessors in to make sure that we've done everything right? And then we might have a chat with yeah, some of their technical staff and they're like, sometimes they, they're not 100% across the new policy or they haven't implemented it yet. Or even sometimes they have, they have a plan within their change management plan to implement that soon. These are all nuances that are quite, we're quite able to deal with. And is one of the main advantages of the, the change to the IRAP assessment process away from being compliance focused because Obviously, if, if they have a, a change plan that, and they haven't complied with it yet, that under a pass-fail, that would be a fail. But under the current you know, scheme, we could say, oh, okay, look, there's a risk because you haven't implemented it, but you have plans to, as long as that gets done within your appropriate timeframes, then we're happy, to, we're happy to proceed. A lot of organizations, we also see there's not necessarily mistakes, but misunderstandings in preparing for an IRAP assessment. So a lot of organizations, they'll... They'll take what we call the system security plan annex, which is basically a spreadsheet of all uh, ISM controls. And then they'll just start going through them top to bottom and start trying to start trying to meet all of them. Again, thinking that it's a very compliance focused exercise. And we find that mistake drives a bit of scope misunderstanding. So we'll often go into places and the company will say, oh, yep, we've updated our incident response plan. We've updated our business continuity plan. Here's, here's all our uh, documentation and, and everything like that. And then when we actually drill into it, we say, hey, what are, you, what are we assessing here? What are you trying to sell to government? What is holding the government information? And they're like, oh, we make, we make an, an asset tracking appliance, like a virtual appliance. And we're like, okay, are you providing incident response services to the department that buys that? Are you providing a managed service along with that? And they're like, no, they're just going to get the virtual appliance. And then if anything happens on that host, then, then they've got to do incident response on that because it's part of their environment. 
And we go, okay, we're not going to look at your incident response plan as part of this IRAP assessment then because you're not going to be doing any incident response on government information. We get a lot of, in the scoping phase before the, the tell me phase, the misunderstandings about the scope and how the, the assessment is going to work. You pretty much just have to identify when you're thinking about doing an IRAP assessment, what, what exactly is the, the government information going on? And if you're a private company, what am I selling to government? If your organization is not, if your organization isn't housing the government information internally, or if you don't have some sort of managed service or you aren't providing a lot of people and process services to them, then a lot of the time, a lot of the security documentation is not necessary. It's much more about technical and deployment documentation because you're, you're selling a technology product to them. That's, that's something to definitely keep in mind. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. You mentioned before that there's some misunderstanding. Where do you think that misunderstanding comes from? Is it probably just, they just don't know. And then all of a sudden when you're doing the scoping phase, that's when you start to discover like, Hey, you don't, you don't need to do that. For example. So is that lack of awareness about again, going to what IRAP assessments are? Do you think there's that in it or what do you think? Yeah, I think people people misunderstand about the IRAP assessment being about their organization versus being about the government information. And an IRAP assessment is overwhelmingly about the government information. The information security risk owner is going to accept the risk to the information of which they are the owner of. If your organization doesn't touch that, then a lot of the organizational based controls are not going to be that they, they don't have to be scoped into the assessment. You still absolutely internally in your company should have an incident response plan and a back uh, business continuity plan and all of that other security documentation. But depending on exactly what you're selling to government, or in the case of a government department, exactly what you're you're putting on that thing or what its function is, that's how you should try and scope your preparation work for an IRAP assessment, because that's how the IRAP assessor is going to scope it. Okay, no, that that's that's wonderful. Thank you very much for sharing that and providing clarity around that. You mentioned something before as well, Remy, around people need to prepare. So for people who are listening that maybe are at a stage where they need to start preparing to do their IRAP assessment or they're thinking about it, what are some things that come to mind that people should start doing? Simon indicated before, try not to, try not to completely rush to fulfill security controls. Think about what's, what's truly necessary and what provides you genuine security. And then whoever's writing your security policies and your security plans have, have them talk quite often and extensively with the technology people because we find that you'll get some people who are good at writing security policy, but they don't actually do the implementation. A good example is there was a system where they said that they were blocking all USB ports. Their security policy was like all USB ports completely blocked. So we don't have to worry about the external media risk. And they met a whole bunch of controls in the ISM around external media and USB ports. And then we go to the we go to the show me phase and the administrator immediately sits down and plugs in a YubiKey to the workstation to authenticate themselves with, with MFA. And we go, you haven't blocked USB ports completely because somebody just plugged a, a YubiKey in. So there's kind of a, whoever's written that security policy has decided independently that they're going to block all USB ports because they don't have media, but they are not truly understood the function of USB port over what the function of external media is. Having, having your people talk quite, quite clearly. So communication is, is, is very key. 
I would use the the ISM as a blueprint, go through go through the ISM and decide kind of what's necessary and applicable to your system and don't try and rush to meet them, but simply make comments and plans about how you might do things in the in the future because you can get an IRF assessment that takes into account your forward plans. In fact, they make uh, allowance for it in the information security manual by suggesting that you create a, a POAM, a plan of action and milestones, for people who are uh, familiar with the term. But yeah, if you if you create a plan that says this is where we are at this current time, but we plan to implement, we plan to upgrade the version of uh, transport layer security on all of our web services and this date, this is who's going to do it. This is the plan for doing that. And then at this date, we're going to do this. The IRP assessment can absolutely take that into account and go, yeah, they have a really good plan of updating this this security. And so while they aren't using the latest version of TLS right now, we can see that they have a plan to do it in the future. So that starts to diminish risk a bit. Okay. So what I'd like to explore a little bit more now is on the report side of things. So maybe Simon, if you could share a little bit more fidelity. So you've obviously, you've done the the tell me, show me, then you produce the port. What's in it? So is it similar to like a standard penetration testing report? Do you give recommendations? Is it just fail or not fail? Like, what does it look like? Yeah, so it's certainly it's certainly not fail, not fail or pass because it is it is a, a risk based approach. But effectively, what you get is you get a report at the end that outlines how well your security plan has aligned to the guidelines and the intent of the information security manual, and then a, a bunch of sort of sub-risk assessments based off the controls within that, and then an overall risk assessment to the level of classification that, that you're seeking. As we said, you know, the IRAP process is, is designed for government classified information. So if you are trying to build a system for protected, that is going to come with a higher risk consequence. And as a result, you're going to need to have more stringent control, uh, stringent compliance. I hate using that term, but with the guidelines of the ISM. But yeah, the report, the report in and of itself is reasonably straightforward. You're trying to build a, or you have built a system for secret level information, for example. We've gone through your plan and we've gone through the guidelines of the ISM. And uh, we feel like even if perhaps you don't meet all of the controls that they suggest, you've definitely met the intent and you've, you've you know, identified shortcomings that you weren't able to implement and implemented alternate controls to satisfy those. And then it comes with sort of an overall risk assessment and uh, most importantly, rather concise executive summary so that the, the risk owner who doesn't, who may not even be a technical professional can look at that and, and say like, yeah, okay, the risk, the risk level is low because of all of these reasons. And then, yes, I, I'm willing to accept that risk. Okay, that's interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that. One other thing I'd like to ask now quickly, maybe I'll go to you, Remy, is after you do the report, just say, for example, didn't quite cut the mustard, for example, is there a period of time that you, you can't just, just come back and do another assessment? Like you come, can't come back the next week and go, oh, okay, we fixed all the problems and we're going to try to do it again. Do you have to wait a certain period of time or what does that look like? So that you, you'll always get a report. So the IRAP, there's no, there shouldn't be any IRAP assessors who look at your system and go, no, there's, there's not enough security here. You're not getting an IRAP report. You'll always get an IRAP report. The difference in that report is going to be how many recommendations are made and what the risk profile looks like. So that report might say very high risk or it might say low risk. You then, when you deliver that to the information security risk owner, 
the information security risk owner has the the ultimate decision there. So they might that they might still accept it, even if you have a a very high risk for your information security. That risk owner might be willing to accept that level of information security risk, and that that's absolutely on them. That's a that's about the context of of that information about their department about what they're using it for. So generally, generally you won't go back once you you get a report. If you get an IREP report and it's got a whole bunch of recommendations in it, then you go away and that information security risk owner says, no, this this risk is too high, I won't accept it. And you want to go for another IRAP assessment. You can't shop around IRAP assessments to find one who will give you a lower risk. Generally, what you would do is look at the recommendations there, implement enough of those that you think that you've driven down the risk to a reasonable level, and then you can go and get a, another IRAP assessment. Generally, there's, there's no hard and fast rule, but generally ACSC doesn't really like that happening within a six to 12 month period. But if, if you can demonstrate, again, it's a, a risk-based attitude. So if you can demonstrate that you've significantly up, uh, uplifted the, uh, the security, then you could conceivably obtain another report. In general, IRAP assessments are valid for, for two years. So after two years, you should get a reassessment, which would probably be scoped a little bit smaller. And if nothing's changed, is not going to be a particularly long assessment. It's going to be a, a reissue of a, a similar report. Something, something to note is that IRAP assessments are generally logged with ACSC for quality control. So where an assessor will log three assessments, there's three assessments in a row for the same system in the same company, ACSC would notice that and say, what's, what's going on here? Why are you getting so many IRAP assessments? And uh, on the side, IR assessments are not prohibitively expensive, but they're moderately expensive. You might kind of be throwing money away if you're not actually upgrading your security in between. The uh, pool of IRAP assessors within Australia is a very, very scarce resource. So it is a public list. You can, uh, you can get onto the ACSC website and see the list of IRAP assessors. But uh, last count, I think there's about uh, 200 and 215 or something like that assessors in the country. So yeah, very scarce resource, hence the reason why it, for some organizations, having multiple IRAP assessments may be prohibitively expensive. So yeah, certainly don't build your security policy by having concurrent IRAP assessments and just implementing the recommendations. That's not a good or a, an economically feasible way of preparing a security plan. Yes. Well, I, I do know that I, I, IRAP assessors are quite rare. So you, so you guys are, you guys are rare. So I appreciate that. Now, I'd like to just sort of conclude our interview today because we have spoken at Australian Sovereignty Peace and then the IRAP assessment side of things and how that all works. So do you think that now, because the government is focusing on sovereignty, we should start to see more organisations who are working with government, as you alluded to, Simon, become IRAP certified now? If they're associated with government, certainly there'll be more, more and more IRAP assessors coming out. What I would like to see is certainly... Along the lines of sovereignty, I would like to see a, a stronger push towards adherence to the guidelines of the ISM. But I think a lot of that needs to come out of a change in culture around the implementation of security. The ISM is actually quite permissive when you look into it. It's very, very well written. And the controls that it recommends are generally quite easy to implement and come with a high degree of, of security. So some of the ones they push quite strongly. And of course, you can see this within the uh, the ASD Essential 8. Is there Essential 8 controls that they'd like to see implemented? If, are things like multi-factor, like multi-factor authentication, 
where the implementation of that, of course, depending on the size of your enterprise, is not overly burdensome, yet provides such a high level of security and response. But I think within Australia, I would like to see more of a culture change towards security, away from the idea that security is just there to get in the way and, and to make our lives difficult. And one of the taglines that we like to we like to sell to people, and I can't, I can't claim credit for this one, but the tagline we like to sell is, tell me why do, why do cars have brakes? And the answer is cars have brakes so we can drive fast. Right? And that's, that's the, the angle that we like to sell with security. Yeah, I love that. I think that's, that's I, I, for a second now, I thought you were, you were going to ask me and I'm like, I don't know the answer to this one. So I appreciate you joining me <laughs> at the end. So in terms of final thoughts or closing comments, is there anything that each of you would like to share and leave our audience with today? Yeah, so uh, I'll, I'll go first because I'm assuming Simon will also want to say something. For me, if you're a private organization, I understand that there's obviously a, a business reason why you do security, but there's also business reasons why you might choose not to do some security. I would, I would try and, as I said before, understand the environment in which you're operating in, understand the threat environment, the risk environment you're operating in. But more than that, seek to, seek to create uh, good plans. And like Simon was saying, good, feasible, workable plans. Ultimately, cybersecurity is a human problem about people. Just don't hack other computers. People hack computers and, and people feel the effects of that. So it is ultimately a human problem. And where you create uh, nebulous, wide, sweeping and complicated security policies, procedures, plans and controls, you'll often find that you'll have high resistance from your users and it'll be difficult for the administrators to use. Like Simon was saying, the ISM details a lot of really quite, not necessarily simple in first implementation, but simple in concept and simple in ongoing upkeep security controls that give really great benefit to your overall security posture for your organization, starting with the Essential 8 and moving out into the rest of the ISM, implementing some of these and thinking, I can, I can do this rather than why shouldn't I do this or how can I avoid this? Start thinking, how can I create more security and how can I creatively try and make security controls that are going to drive down risk in my organization? For, for government departments, there's obviously a lot of bureaucracy tied up in it, but understanding your environment and having a really good, really good framework and really good support from higher from the SES bands around creating security and not thinking of it as a showstopper, but thinking of it as a safety blanket or brakes on a car so that you have the confidence to use your systems, the purpose in which they're supposed to be used and that they are secure. Yeah, I'd certainly agree with that. So while the ISM contains a whole bunch of guidelines that are really, really excellent for people to wrap their heads around and use that to shape their security policy, of course, it's quite difficult to write security policy if you approach it with the mindset of we we need to adhere to the ISM controls. Because if you list the controls, 800 whatever number of controls, and you're like, oh, okay, well, I need to address them in order from top to bottom, your security plan is going to be a mess. What we should do, rather than, rather than going in with a mindset of like, we must adhere to these controls, go in with a mindset of let's make a good security plan one that everyone can understand. Uh, like Remy said, it's a people problem. People don't understand it doesn't work. So go, go in with the mindset of let's make a good security plan. And when you're done, you'll find you've probably adhered to the guidelines anyway. 
And then of course, if you need to go through the controls and say, okay, we can tidy things up here and here, by all means. Wonderful. I really do appreciate both of you coming on the show today, sharing thoughts, opinions, your insights, some of the assumptions that people have about IRAP assessment. I must say I've done 150 interviews and I've never spoken about IRAP assessment. So I think this is a really great one to have and I really appreciate both of you uh, sharing your insights, quite quite tangible insights as well. So thanks very much for coming on the show and um, yeah, giving the opportunity uh, for my audience. A pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's been wonderful. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. This podcast is brought to you by MercSec, the specialists in security, search and recruitment solutions. Visit MercSec.com to connect today. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.